When I talk to property investors, they often tell me using debt is a key advantage over other asset classes. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rask. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rask Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rask AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Alisa, welcome onto the Australian Finance Podcast today. Thanks very much for having me, Kate. Great to be here. And thanks for coming to our studio in Sydney. It's fun to record some episodes up here for a change. No, it's uh, it's a great studio that you've got. Uh, so looking forward to our chat. What does a day in a life look like for you as a fund manager? Yeah, so in funds management, the role is multifaceted. So we're interested in what's happened in the markets. Uh, it's what's happened to the portfolio. Um, we're engaging with our clients, but then also working with our investment team on how we're thinking about the investment philosophy. So in terms of like the direction of, of the day and, and what it looks like, I think most of us would always start with, well, what's happening in markets because um, markets are such an important part of, of being a fund manager. It can impact not just the performance but then also that long-term thinking of, well, is this a quality company? Um, so, yeah, it's starting the day looking at emails, blogs, um, and, yeah, it all we, we goes from there. Uh, yeah. But Reading the AFR over breakfast? Uh, well, Magellan, we're focused on global <laughs> companies. So uh, what we get the benefit of is just getting the whole spectrum of, of global news from opening to close uh, from when we when we wake up. We're not watching the, the market live. I really enjoy my uh, my sleep. So Oh, that's good. <laughs> I feel like people's sort of mental image of a fund manager is probably someone that's just staring at their computer at what the stock market is doing at any second. Well, our traders have that image, that six-screen uh, um, virtual, which has got all of the, the trading picks and, and, and live uh, 
happenings. But I'd say for the more research analyst side of things, we do do a lot of reading. Of course, we do have um, the, the stock charts that we're looking at, but a big part of our day is discussing our view on the market um, and how that could be impacting the future uh, of our companies, the industries that they play in, and then the outcome on the portfolio. Sounds pretty serious. Do you have any fun? I love it. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. You? you love being curious about companies and what's going on in the world? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, something that if that's what I think is the draw card to funds management. Uh, I think a lot of people often forget because it's that kind of what you've seen in Hollywood is not really a reflection of our day-to-day lives. It's not uh, near as sexy uh, as Hollywood, I think, is portraying <laughs> it. Not Wolf of Wall Street. No, not Wolf of Wall Street. But um, I suppose some of like we just find it really interesting. Like we, we get to, to read and to learn, um, which is just as an extension of our, our days at school. And how did you end up specifically in funds management? Tell me a little bit about your journey along there. Yeah, so I was always good at maths. Um, and then when I got to high school, started studying uh, economics. So definitely had the right kind of foundation in terms of the subjects I enjoyed and the way my brain uh, was thinking. But I think the translation and why I really like that kind of inner working of, of companies and how it fits into the macro is that my family always owned um, a lot of different small businesses. Um, and then I was working in um, one of the restaurants uh, that we had. And so you're all always kind of just talking about the ups and downs of the business and, and the success and what would needed to, to change. And so that translated to the dinner table and talking about the economy and companies. So it's a really nice kind of adjunct that now like my job is to kind of interrogate companies and, and see how they fit into the industry. <laughs> it's always so interesting how people's money story plays into where they are today. And that's that's really fascinating working in a small business. Are there any other insights that you think you've gained from working in that small family business environment that are helping you today? Uh, I think the main one would be just being able to talk to people mm-hmm. um, because you need to have a confidence when you're working in a restaurant. Uh, you're, you're talking to all different clients and interacting. And so when you do that from a young age, uh, I think that's a really important skill just to build confidence uh, in in what you're doing. And then it's also that just resilience and working in restaurants, it's really fast paced. You've got to multitask. And I think in, in life, if you're able to, to multitask and just kind of keep working on one project while something else is boiling in the background, pasta or uh, <laughs> whatever it may be, uh, I think it work, it's, it's a really important skill. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear that because I'm sure many listeners have had that experience of working in retail or hospitality mm. or something like that and probably wonder how those skills might be applicable to investing. So even just hearing that the conversation aspect is really important because part of what your job is just to ask questions. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Really yeah. Good point, Kate. Do you have uh, a lot of conversations with the companies that you're looking to invest in on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, absolutely. It's a big focus um, at Magellan is the engagement um, side of our role. And there's really two reasons for that. One is to better understand the risks and opportunities of that company, but then also to potentially influence that company to drive those superior long-term outcomes. We actually spoke to a company uh, this morning. Uh, So the end of the day in the US is uh, bright and early. So you're uh, hustling on the way to the studio. (laughs) That's right. Um, And so it's... um, an out-of-cycle um, annual general meeting, and we do like to talk to our companies uh, to help inform um, our voting to, to better understand their perspective um, before we execute our votes. Uh, just one example. So that was uh, a call we had this morning, but, uh, yeah, we're always talking to our companies um, to better understand what the opportunities and risks are. You mentioned voting there because I think that's something that often we forget as shareholders of individual companies that 
we have the opportunity to vote on issues there. So do you, you take quite an active approach there? Yeah, no, we have a really active approach to our stewardship. Um, so that is that engagement to influence, but then also our um, proxy voting process. So we do all of that in-house. Um, we have our ESG team that leads it, but then we're really working with our investment team because they're the ones that know the companies inside out. What is the right metric to drive long-term growth? Um, our analysts know that better than what the ESG team could be potentially influencing them. So, yeah, we, we do all of that internally and it's a really important role that we have uh, as active managers and the role that our vote can can have because we are trying to drive that positive influence uh, and positive change in the company and your vote is a way that you're able to do that. So thinking from a retail in- investor point of view where I might only have $1,000 invested in a company, do you think it's still worth me paying attention and voting? Can I can I have any sway? Look, it's it's all about the number of shares it does come down to because it's the majority that will lead to to um, your say. But just like your voting um, counts in politics, it does count um, when when you're um, when you're voting uh, for for companies as well. So I would really encourage everyone to to pay attention um, to those annual general meetings. And the good thing about it is that you can really get to know your companies better, which then will give you more confidence in your investment thesis, um, be it that be that to to maintain your holding or to potentially sell. Um, because governance is such an important part um, in investing, in having confidence in management and how they're able to continue to uh, invest the earnings that you are, that they're your your earnings essentially. So you want to have conviction in your management team. Absolutely. And as a side note for anyone listening, we've been doing some work with the Australian Shareholders Association and they provide some great insights there on how to actually research when a company puts an issue up for vote and what their perspectives are. So that might be a helpful resource if anyone's interested. Now, what I'm also interested in learning about is why you chose to go down an active investing path. Many of our listeners are passive investors. They're investing in ETFs. They're building up a core portfolio. What led you down the more active side of investing? Yeah, so I think it really is. So in index investing, you get the whole market. So that can be the the winners and then the laggards. Um, And it's really interesting stat this year that like the the majority of investors of strength of, of markets this year has really been driven by what we call the magnificent seven out of the S&P 500. The, the remainder of the universe hasn't done that well this year. So when you're doing index investing, you're going to get the market return with certainty, the winners plus the losers. Um, but in active investing, the way that Magellan approaches it is that we do this deep fundamental research. We're looking for those companies that can generate sustainable excess returns into the future for decades to come. So that's our definition of what a winner is, a company that can keep keep generating really strong returns. So that's really why like we're focused on uh, active investing and the role that active investing plays uh, within your portfolio because we're looking to, to really beat the market over the long term because we're picking these companies that will be around for decades. Many of us have heard that we can't usually outperform the market. We, we won't just be able to pick winners. What helps you and the team at Magellan find those companies that are going to outperform the rest? Yeah, I think that really comes down to our investment philosophy. Now, I've been at Magellan for over eight years and when I started, I was like, okay, these guys have a really different approach to working out, well, what what could we invest in? And that's our approved universe. And that really is that definition of quality. So what we're looking for is not just a particular ratio, um, what's the company done in the past? We're looking at, well, how can this company 
keep generating really strong returns into the future. And so that is like it's easier to say than actually do, right? <laughs> like it's you're trying to have this crystal ball, which none of us have. But what we do is deep research um, and collaborating and understanding well, what makes a quality company. So we're looking for competitive advantages. Does the brand have does, – does, does it have a brand? Does it have mm-hmm. scale advantages, barriers to entry, network effects? All of these attributes will protect the economic moat their ability to generate excess returns into the future. And it's not just looking at it once, it is just continually monitoring what potentially could be impacting um, our investment case on why this is uh, a quality company. Um, and I think quality is something that I, I'll probably talk about too much today because it's uh, <laughs> really something we that we really focus on. But quality is a word that's used quite a lot and I, I think mean, we it, all hear quality over quantity yes, with most things in our lives exactly um but I think it's really important to ask your que- the question of well why is it do you is it important to be investing in quality companies um or we would say our definition of quality companies um and that's because when you're thinking about a quality company it's you have greater certainty about its ability to earn returns into the future as you can imagine, you'd be willing to pay more. Um, you should have more stability in a company where you've got greater certainty about their ability to, to earn returns uh, into the future. These companies more, are more likely to compound. Uh, so that means that they're higher returning companies that they take their free cash flows, they reinvest in their business to then generate you, the shareholder, that compounded attractive return. And then if you're quality, you can keep investing through the cycle. You have the ability to take advantage um, of market dips and market highs, which then will lead to a stronger company that comes out of the cycle, whereas lower quality companies could be struggling uh, at different points in the cycle. So we think it's a really important um, attribute to be looking for uh, in investing. You mentioned before with quality, there's a whole range of different things you look at, like competitive advantage. Are you able to break a few of those down for us so that if we're looking at a company, we can kind of try and spot them. Yeah, no, absolutely. So there are many different attributes that you you can be looking for. Um, So I think Microsoft, great example of a high quality company. Uh, So Microsoft, most of us know them for their productivity suite um, in office. So it has extreme scale when it comes to to that that software. Pretty much all of us use it on a day-to-day basis. It's embedded in our workflows, be it personally uh, at university or also in the office. Uh, It also has um, a... Uh, It's one of the leading players in Azure, which is a cloud offering. So what we have here is two really strong products that it has um, really strong industry structure. So in the case of um, the operating, sort of operating, the productivity suite, you could call it a monopoly. In the case of cloud, it's operating an oligopoly. It also has scale. They're the largest in the fields that it plays in. It has high barriers to entry. So to recreate what it's done with Office is going to take a significant investment from a competitor to try and eat some of the economics that um, that Microsoft has within its uh, productivity suite. And not only does it need to invest to have a good product, but it needs to be a better product to encourage people to, to switch because the switching costs for us as individuals, we know how to use um, office. We've been using it, I mm. think, probably since we've like 10 years old, probably even younger now. And so for us to switch that muscle memory onto a new product, it's got to be better. 
And Microsoft just keeps innovating so that we want to keep using their, their, their products. So there's some of the things to be looking for, like what is the barrier to entry? Is it high? Is it low? Um, does it have a strong brand? Um, what's the scale advantages of this business? Could it What does the competitive landscape look like? So it's really interesting reading. So it's looking at the companies, looking at the peers, um, and then looking at the industry structure and also what the kind of future direction of a particular industry uh, is going in. Is it a growth industry um, like cloud is? And then on the flip side, you had a company like Kodak uh, that was focused on cameras, but then wasn't necessarily doing the innovation to understand, well, where the where was the world going? We all now have a camera in our pocket on our phone, which has made that business um, not necessarily a forward-looking business for what it was. Yeah, it's quite funny. I was at a party the other day and they had the, the Kodak printed cameras with the disposables, but... Uh, it was certainly a novelty. It's not something that you see all the time no. anymore. <laughs> Is this similar to the idea of an investment moat? Because we've had a few guests on the past talk about the, the concept of having a castle and a moat to defend your company. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's the exact term that we use uh, internally. Uh, it's one of our six quality factors that we do all of our, our research on. And it's what we were just speaking about in Microsoft and what those attributes are. That's really uh, what creates the moat of that business. So we're looking for a, a wide and a deep moat. Um, and that's what Microsoft, all those attributes that we were talking about, that like it's really, it's very hard for anyone to come in uh, and compete with that business. And importantly, it's having that view on management and how is management continuing to innovate to protect that moat. It's one thing if you've had a moat in the past, but if you're not being forward looking and you can't protect it, uh, then you're not going to be able to continue to uh, earn those really attractive returns into the future. What sort of questions would you be asking management to see if they're on the ball and thinking about the future and not going to be like Blockbuster when Netflix came along? Yeah, so it's really important that we as investors read widely because you need to be kind of thinking about, well, what trend could be disrupting the business? And then you are asking management those exact questions. Um, so if something happens in a result, for example, um, where the company did underperform, we ask ourselves the question, then we talk to management to, to, to really tease out, was that just a cyclical issue? Um, or is there something structurally going wrong uh, in the business that could be leading to um, some form of destruction um, of the economic moat? Now, as you can imagine, companies are always going to say, no, no, it was just a one-off black swan event. Um, and so we when it's something that we view is material, we'll then talk to industry um, and uh, try and understand uh, whether or not we think it could be that just cyclical element or is it a structural change in this business? Now, you mentioned underperforming, and that's quite interesting because I often hear on the news, oh, this company underperformed analyst expectations. Can you break that jargon down for us? Yes. So if one, someone, someone's saying it's underperforming expectations, so uh, sitting alongside the funds management industry is an industry called sell side. And so uh, sell side, their role as brokers uh, is to come up with, with forecasts and they're publicly uh, available or publicly available to, to the industry. Um, and that's really determining, well, what is the market experience? expecting for a particular stock. So we do our own modeling uh, internally. So we'll have our own ex expectation of what yep. the company uh, should be should be doing. Um, but that really then becomes an anchor um, and that prices are based off, well, what do, is the market expecting? So if you do underperform, then you're likely to see that share price uh, reaction to the downside. Whereas if you uh, outperform on revenue or, or your earnings, uh, that would lead to a, an, a, an upwards uh, review. But again, it really depends uh, on 
the share price reaction if is, does the market think it is something that is structural change or is it just like a, a smaller issue and how quickly that could correct. Okay, that's really interesting. Something else I wanted to discuss because there are just so many companies globally, like thousands and thousands, probably tens of thousands, I don't know. I haven't looked at most of the, the markets outside of the US yeah. and Australia. How do you look at that and then turn that into something useful for your research because there's just so many I, I imagine most people listening would just look at the list of companies globally get overwhelmed and just go it's too hard yeah oh look it's not easy starting with a blank canvas um because you've got well over like three thousand listed companies that you need to make the decision for so we will do a filter on liquidity because as a as a larger manager having the ability to to enter and exit positions is really important so we do have a filter on that but then the next layer is that quality research. Um, so there's no kind of quick answer I can give you on how to determine what to, to invest in. It's really doing that deep work, understanding um, what makes this company tick and how it will continue to generate these excess returns. But I suppose some of the things you can look for is, and it's a really an outcome of how we're thinking about quality, is that defensibility of earnings and then is there a structural tailwind that this company could benefit from? And so you just ask yourself, those questions of well think about the quality like we already discussed like is it in a does it have a strong industry structure um like how do i use this product could like is this a product essential for me because then it could be like an essential product like microsoft office to millions of other other people as well um so it's really just having those like those thoughts of is it quality and then well what industry does this play in is there going to be that structural growth for that business for for years to come so like visa and mastercard we've had them in the portfolio for for over a decade really high quality companies and we had that conviction in the ability for these businesses to keep growing because of that cash digitization tailwind now just because the tailwind exists doesn't mean every like every payments company is quality there's a whole bunch out there that have that have failed <laughs> right but it's doing the work on is it quality so it was a really strong industry structure um, what does the industry look like why is this going to be successful the network effect that means that every player uh, on that network uh, benefits as the network grows. So having that as the base plus that structural tailwind, it meant that they were going from just personal consumption growth and spending to the digitization tailwind, uh, tailwind and then the e-commerce tailwind, that they've been able to generate revenues in the, the low double digits, then earnings um, in the close to the mid-teens for over a decade, really attractive uh, businesses. So there's a few things you can look at um, to try and uh, break that down and really just play in your circle of competence. Like if you don't understand an industry, then just leave it to the side. Like just focus on what you can really understand um, to, to make the investment decision. What would you say your circle of competence is? I've been in fina covering financial stocks yep. um, for well over a decade now. So I think that would be the 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 like the, the true niche and strength um, of the, the knowledge that I have. But then the more you, you, you keep looking at companies, your circle of competence continues to grow because you'll, you'll start to kind of get a feeling for, well, how do I look at a management team? And so then you could read a newspaper article where you're really impressed by perhaps a management team, then you do a little bit more work and it could be in a completely different industry. And you'll see that there are similarities in what you're looking for um, in companies. Um, but if it's, if you like pharmaceuticals, for example, often industry people um, aren't as familiar with, it, if it's all about that next um, big bang uh, drug that comes out, 
like if you don't have the ability to predict that or, or know um, the the tech cycle in pharma, then it's probably not the best place uh, to play. But if you can be thinking about industries um, like like tech and Microsoft, it's a company that you you could maybe can get your head around. Then then definitely do the work. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. For some people, they're probably thinking right now and going, I don't really know what my circle of competence is. Maybe I've worked in an office job, but it doesn't really relate to any specific industry. How would you start to build out your skill set so you can look at different companies? Yeah, I think always start with what you're interested in. Mm. So that would be just opening up the newspaper um, and read a bit of each of the different sections. And if you're really finding yourself liking uh, reading about a particular industry, then just kind of go down that rabbit hole. Uh, and then if that doesn't work out, then go down the next one. Like this, the whole role of investing is just that intellectual curiosity. Just keep reading and learning because um, that will help you uh, piece together uh, the puzzles. Sometimes people say, oh, start with a, a company that you use, yeah, a product absolutely. of yourself. Do you think yeah. that helps? Yeah, definitely. Because it's it help, it becomes more relatable um, and you can really understand uh, how that business ticks because you know how you use that product uh, in your, your everyday life. Uh, and I'd highly recommend um, like managers, like Magellan does this, we, we write stock stories, for example, um, at least on a quarterly basis where we're kind of unpacking, well, what makes this company tick? Why is it that we like it? And so that can be a nice little cheat sheet uh, on how to think about investing um, is just reading those stock stories and market commentary that comes um, from fund managers. Yeah, and it's a great process just to write down why you're interested in something and the reasons why you're buying it before you buy it. We, yeah, we often absolutely. encourage uh, our listeners to actually have a plan when it comes to their investing and not just take some a stock tip from their friend and invest straight away, actually yeah. slow it down. What's the average time frame between you finding out about a company doing the research before you would invest in it? Uh, so we're really long-term holders yeah. um, in, in our portfolio. So we typically hold a, a stock for three to five years. So we're often just picking from our approved list versus this is a new idea, it's a new stock that's come onto our approved list and then it would enter straight away. Like these are companies that we really live and breathe um, and have have been investing in for on and off for, for, for decades but in terms of the initial due diligence, uh, it can be kind of one month of research all the way up to, to six months of research to really get our head around what are the opportunities, why is it quality, uh, and like what are the material risks. Like we're all about what we call downside protection and that's just managing the potential um, risks to the business. So we want to know them inside out um, and we're happy to spend more time understanding the risks uh, versus just making a decision uh, without really knowing knowing what we're getting into. How deep's the research? Like, do you fly out to visit the company? Do you test their products? Like, how far do you go? Uh, oh, all of the above. Yep. Yeah, so there's a lot of research that we do from our desktop. We're in a really privileged position that there's so much information mm. now available that, like, company disclosure has really expanded over um, the last decade. So we can do a lot from our desktop looking uh, at what companies publish. Uh, we talk to industry experts. We talk to peers. Um, we can go and meet the companies um, 
overseas. That's most of our, the companies that we're doing. But we're really lucky now with teams that we can actually get access to management um, from our uh, from 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 our own home as well, which is which is great. And it makes a huge difference being able to really question management uh, about some of their strategies and decisions that have been made in the past, and then how they're thinking about the future. It just brings everything off the page to give me give us more confidence in the decisions that we're making in the portfolio. So technology is helping you be a better investor. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Though on the flip side, there's so much news. So yes. you really need to learn to read through the noise that can come through. So in some of the companies I cover, you wake up in the morning and you're just like, wow, 200, uh, 200 emails here. And when you go through, it's pretty much all noise. Yeah. Um, not all news is necessarily going to be impacting um, that company. So the more you get to know it, the more you can really kind of read between, well, what's noise and what will actually be potentially impacting the company just on that short-term more momentum noise or what could be kind of long-term positive, long-term negative. And that's one of the biggest challenges new investors face is just working out what's important and what's not. And yeah. that, that takes, is it just time and practice? Yeah, time and practice like you even, and just also reflecting. Um, I would like always encourage people to just have as much self-awareness um, as you can. And I think the point you made earlier, Kate, was writing down, well, why is it that I'm investing in this company? Because if it if it doesn't go well, then you've you've learned something. Like let's just like you're not always going to make the right decisions. We don't always make the right decisions, but it's learning from them that will then mean that you're more likely to make a better decision in the future. Yeah. So not repeating the exact same mistake. Exactly. Making new mistakes in the future. <laughs> now, I wanted to talk to you about some of the companies in your portfolio yes. and you kindly brought along some product examples yes. because we were going to dive into Nestle, I yep. believe. Yes. Yeah. So Nestle is a company that we have covered, I think, for well over 15 years and we've been invested in, I believe it's for over a decade. So it's quite a long time. It's a really long time. Um, Nestle is what we would call our quality defensive company. So I mentioned before looking potentially for structural growth as, as a way to, to, to look at whether a company is quality. But being defensive is also really important as well because remember back to that definition of what makes a quality company, it's that ability to to see into the future. And when you have a high quality defensive, we've got a lot of certainty around the future earnings uh, of Nestle because it's really strong with its industry structure. Yeah. Okay. So Nestle, uh, I imagine many have heard of it uh, probably because of chocolate or coffee, but it is one of the largest uh, or it is the largest um, consumer staples company in the world. Right. So it has incredible scale, one of those quality points that we mentioned before. It has uh, over 2,000 brands. Uh, it's in over 180 uh, countries. But just because it has brands doesn't mean that it's going to be a high-quality company. It needs to have scale, which we mentioned when it's got that um, number of brands in the countries that it's in. But importantly, it's that quality of, um, of brand that Nestle has. So it has over 30 brands that generate more than a billion in revenue every year. And it's also the number one or number two brand in seven of the top 10 growing food and beverage categories in the world. Okay. So all of that is really important because 
it's a competitive market. Like you think about yourself when you go into the supermarket. So much choice. There's so much choice across all of the the brands that Nestle is competing with, be it in chocolate, be it in Mm. pet food or um, Maggi noodles. There's a lot of competition. Nestle in pet food? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yeah. You wouldn't even know from the surface, would you? No, no. So And what's a really important part is that breadth because those distribution relationships that it has means that it's got a lot of – negotiating power when it comes to working with the supermarkets and its distributors, um, which is a really important part of that what we're looking for in a quality company because if you've got such scale, you'll then be able to get your products on the shelves in a timely manner and then you'll also be able to have some level of pricing power. Now, as we've gone through this period of high inflation, that's been a really important element for Nestle that they're able uh, to reprice and then that means the the margins of the business aren't too uh, heavily impacted because they could take some of that price back. Now, being a large player with scale enables you to do that. So some of the things we've talked about um, so far uh, with with Nestle and then with companies and what makes them quality, it's that ability to keep protecting their their moat. Um, And the scale that they have then means that they can keep innovating. Now, that's how you bring freshness to a brand. Now, that means you have better operating leverage, you have cost advantages over those smaller peers. So if you can, can keep doing that and we're very confident in Nestle's management uh, team from our engagement with them and then how they execute on their strategy, it gives us confidence then in those future cash flows. It's also how they're investing in sustainability, which is a really important uh, risk and opportunity within the consumer staples space. Yeah, especially so, just transporting their goods all over the world. Like, yes. How do they do that? Yeah, no, no, it's really important. There's so many things that they need to be thinking about. So I have, let's yeah, well, I think some we, of the things we've, we've talked these, about, what, right? Two thousand companies. Yeah. So the Kit Kat. Yeah. Now everyone would think, oh, I've not been eating Kit Kat for years. You probably don't know it's been around since 1935, right? So very old established brand. But when you think about Kit Kat, I think most don't think about it as this old, stodgy old brand. It's actually a brand that we all love, and everyone grows up thinking that this is a really great product. Why is that? Because they continue to innovate and because of the scale and presence that they have in distribution, they then get into the store. So the original KitKat, hello. The OG. Right. They then, like these are just some examples of the innovation. (laughs) We've got the Chunky with Milo and then Hazelnut. Now, what that does is just bring freshness to the brand. It means that when you go to the store, you're like, oh, I haven't tried, I like KitKat, I haven't tried that. You then, you, you grab that and it keeps you within that Nestle, um, that that circle. Yeah. And I it, think a few years ago they had a KitKat your DIY in Melbourne Central. Yes. Um, yeah. And that you could go and make it and choose what goes in and yeah. encourage you to gift it to people. Yes. So it's, it's a really important part of just that brand innovation, brand freshness um, to keep people thinking about uh, your products. Now, the other thing that Nestle do really well is a concept called good, better, best. Um, So that means that they're able to engage with their consumer um, across all different income levels um, and that consumer journey. So as your wealth increases, you can still keep going within Nestle in the good, better, best. As the market turns and you perhaps, oh, I need to like not spend as much uh, at the moment, you can then go 
like go down um, that uh, that circle. Mm-hmm. And so coffee is a, uh, an example where they do that really, really well. So you've got your Nest Cafe, which is kind of your your entry level. Classic. Yeah, they've then partnered with Starbucks, um, which is that higher level of the instant coffee. And then what they've done exceptionally well is that at home appealing to the coffee connoisseur through the Nespresso pods with single origin, for example. So it's really engaging with the consumer, understanding what their needs are, being nimble, and because of their scale, their ability to, to invest in R&D, they're able to do that um, and keep their audience um, as part of uh, like like captive essentially. Yeah, that's so, so interesting because, I mean, if I want to reduce costs, I will just use my pod machine at home yeah. instead of going out. Yeah, no. So they've, they've done a really good job at – kind of innovating um, new products within their circle of competence, uh, acquiring businesses that could then fit into their distribution network. So highly defensible company with quality earnings. The industry structure is really uh, positive for Nestle. It's that number one and two brand is a really important part of the architecture uh, on the 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 shelf essentially that that you can't have too many different options and that the fact that you are the top means that you'll get more shelf um, presence. So we have a lot of conviction in Nestle's future earnings, it's their scale, it's their brand, it's defensibility of earnings, pricing power and that focus on ESG and the investment that they're making in packaging. Uh, Yeah, really high quality company. Yeah, I guess looking on the flip side, is there anything they can't do? Are there any risks to be aware of? Because we talk about that a lot in investing. Yeah, so risks for Nestle, um, in terms of predicting cash flows, we have a lot of like um, knowledge on where that will go. It's kind yeah. of that GDP style growth. It's the managing of, of costs um, is something that you do, we have to be uh, really cognizant on for a company like this, given their large manufacturing facilities. And it's that timing on how they're able to pass on uh, the price. And so there was a bit of uncertainty in that coming through COVID because you can't, just because costs went up, you can't go straight to Coles and Woolies, I need to increase the price. There's a, a timing and a cycle um, to, to pass that through. And so so that is a risk for these business and their ability to price um, to, to reprice, and that's the focus on quality is is really important here for the likes of Nestle because the cost base is there, and you need to be able to recoup uh, some of that in in periods of higher inflation. How did you get your head around all 2,000 brands or do you just focus on those biggest revenue earners? Uh, definitely focus on the, the bigger revenue earners, but then it's also just that broader strategy uh, in how Nestle uh, is operating. But our they are con- our team that covers our consumer and franchises, they are all over it and they'll be, a, I think uh, Tracy would be speaking to you for, for many hours about the opportunities within the company. Amazing. And just thinking more broadly, in your role managing a portfolio, how do you think about risk? Because it's something I think about quite a bit of how do I mitigate and minimize risk in different areas of my life and my investments? Yeah, it's a really important part of our investment process. So um, one of my roles at Magellan is I'm the portfolio manager of our core strategy. So uh, within those strategies, we have a different way of managing risk than what perhaps the active managers are doing. But a big part of it is really coming down to that universe selection. So when we're thinking about what makes a quality company, um, some of those the, of those six factors that we're looking at, uh, two of those are related uh, primarily to risk. So we call that business risk. Um, and so that's looking at, well, what is the risk to the predicting future cash flows? Uh, and then also agency risk. So we're already thinking about it in terms of what stocks we will be investing in. So that means we often um, exclude companies that are more speculative in nature or 
that deep value because we want to have that certainty in cash flow. So if we don't have that, they're not in the universe. So I think that's a really important part and that's that circle of competence we were talking about earlier. Um, diversification. It's a really important part of managing uh, risk. So in these funds, for example, we have around 80 stocks uh, in the portfolio, which is quite diverse. I'm not saying if in your own portfolio to have 80, that's going to be a, you have a lot of work no, on I your hands. I feel like that's uh, something you do as a profession, <laughs> not an individual. Yes, yes. But it's thinking then about, well, what different sectors um, am I investing in to make sure you have that diversification uh, by, by sector within the portfolio? Um, and then as part of the rules-based approach that we have, we're looking at, well, what's our exposure? by geography, what's the exposure by um, sector, and then the individual stock holding level as well. So it's making sure that you have this balance of risk within the portfolio uh, so that you're not taking on too much within any particular um, different sector or stock exposure. Yeah, I think that's good for us to just think of as individual investors. We probably are not going to have 80 companies in our no. portfolio because we don't have a team to no. <laughs> stay on top of them every day. But just when we're building our portfolio, how are we investing in different things? So we're not putting all of our money into one single company. Yes, yes, absolutely. And as an investor, you've done many different things over the years. You've looked at lots of different companies. Is there any skills that you have that have really helped you become a better investor? Yeah, I think resilience is probably uh, the one that definitely makes you a better investor because markets are tough. Like we've all had, we've like we've we've had the ones that 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 we remember the most uh, that, that were the winners, but then the ones that we learn from uh, are those where we we just we didn't make the right call. And resilience is a really important part of that. Is just learning. Uh, from not necessarily our mistakes. Uh, if we've done the work, then that's fine. But learning from like what could we do better um, as part of that. And it's just keep staying motivated uh, and don't be put off by uh, that good or bad call. It's learning uh, from that will then really just make you uh, a better investor and I think just uh, a better human. <laughs> I like More that philosophical. One. <laughs> <laughs> no, resilience is an important skill. And if someone came up to you right now and wanted some tips because they're just starting investing what would you suggest? Um, I would say to to listen and to be curious. I think that's such an important part of being an investor. Uh, you can learn a lot from listening and just ask questions. Like don't be afraid. Like if you're at a party and you don't know many people, just talk to them. Ask them about what they do and just get like getting to know a person, their career, their role, like that's really important and you can take that back into your investing um, you'll always learn from from talking to people so when you're when you're reading the paper um, maybe hopefully you've got some friends that that like uh, like investing and just really like just discuss different market events uh, to learn because that will then hopefully will translate into how you're thinking about what stocks to be earning at a particular time. Yeah, and that's the great thing about technology now. There's groups online and there's podcasts and a lot of the fund managers, including yourself, have podcasts that are talking about different companies and things. So you can actually learn from the experts themselves. Well, Elisa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We've talked about everything from narrowing down our investment universe, how you define quality companies and got a little insight into why Nestle has been such a long held company in the Magellan portfolios. Is there anything you wanted to add before we wrapped up today? No, I think that was a great conversation. I just would always encourage people to, to keep reading, be curious, um, just look at different fund managers because that's a good way to learn as well. Um, there are different strategies out there and just look at like 
invest in what's true to you. Uh, if you want to be more risk averse, then there are, there are managers that, um, that will invest in that way. So, yeah. Amazing. Well, Elisa, thank Thanks. you so much for coming in the studio today. Thanks, Kate. It was great to chat. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a Rask Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.